You're listening to Lost in History with Scott Miller. In early 1854, a successful young business tycoon named Cyrus Field received a visitor at his home in Gramercy Park in New York City. The guest, a Canadian named Frederick Gisborne, proposed a risky and problematic business venture, a telegraph line that would connect New York City and St. John's in Newfoundland. Field wasn't interested. He had already made a small fortune in the paper industry and had had enough of business. After Gisborne left, though, Field began to study a large globe he kept in his office. His eye fell not to the stretch of territory between the U.S. and Canada. Instead, he focused on the vast expanse of ocean separating the United States from Europe. The idea of becoming the first to lay a telegraph line across the Atlantic captured his imagination. Field knew how hungry people were for communications from the Old World. Each day, at seaports along the coast of Nova Scotia, Massachusetts, and New York, reporters raced in fleets of rowboats to greet ships arriving from Europe and grabbed newspapers, which they printed almost verbatim. So intense was the competition that one newspaper sent a man with semaphore flags to signal the headlines when his ship was within sight of land. Another newspaper sent a reporter with a small flock of carrier pigeons to release with news summaries tied to their legs. If people were so eager to read about events from Europe that were well over a week old, Field thought, imagine what they would give for near instantaneous communication. With no real qualifications, Field threw himself into one of the biggest technological projects of the 19th century. I'm Scott Miller, and welcome to Lost in History. In this podcast, I tell the stories of people you may have never heard of, but who still shape the world. I came across Field and the Atlantic Cable story while writing my first book, The President and the Assassin, McKinley, Terror, and Empire at the Dawn of the American Century. By the time that McKinley was elected president in 1896, Field's transatlantic cable was among the great achievements that were making the United States a world power. What fascinates me about Field is the way he exemplified the spirit of this age. He would face incalculable engineering problems, deadly Atlantic storms, repeated failure, charges of fraud, and near financial ruin to realize a vision that for many Americans was little short of a miracle. Adding to the story, Field found himself in a race against a rival team, backed by Western Union and the Smithsonian, who sought to link the United States and Europe by spanning the world in the opposite direction. Born to the son of a minister in 1819, Field was a no-nonsense, determined boy who was in a hurry to make his mark on life. Rather than attend college as his brothers did, Field opted to go straight into the workforce at the tender age of 15. He took a lowly job as a clerk at the New York department store A.T. Stewart, where he educated himself about the world of business. Just a few years later, he started his own paper company in Massachusetts and proclaimed he would make a fortune in 20 years. In fact, it would take him only 12, thanks to an explosion in demand for paper from the Penny Press, the inexpensive periodicals that were introducing tens of thousands of Americans to newspaper reading. By the early 1850s, he'd become one of the richest men in New York and was able to retire at only 33 years old. 
But Field was still full of energy and ambition, and the idea of a transatlantic cable offered just the right sort of challenge. In the 1850s, that technology was still new, and its limits hadn't been tested. Samuel Morris, an artist-turned-inventor, had developed the telegraph in the 1830s and 40s, and some 20,000 miles of wire had been strung across the United States by the time that Field met Gisborne. But virtually the entire telegraph system was over land. Undersea cables were still something of a novelty. A line had been laid under the English Channel in 1850, but only relatively short stretches of submarine cable had been put down anywhere else. It's hard to overestimate the challenges of laying a cable across the floor of the Atlantic. Electricity was still a mystery in the mid-19th century, and there was little concept of what problems a cable surrounded by seawater would face. The diameter of a pinky finger, the cable would have to support its own tremendous weight as it was lowered to depths of two miles and more. And what if it settled between underwater peaks? Unable to lie smooth, the line would snap within weeks. One engineer suggested it would be easier to suspend the cable above the water surface with hot air balloons than to sink it. Field knew next to nothing about how to solve the immense scientific problems his cable presented, but he quickly found people who did. To learn more about ocean floors, he asked an American naval officer named Matthew Murray, who is now remembered as a father of modern oceanography. By that time, Murray was analyzing the soundings of naval vessels to draw a primitive map of the Atlantic Ocean seabed. He believed, erroneously as it turned out, that there was a raised, flat section that he promisingly called the Telegraph Plateau. Murray also collected samples of the ocean floor, and finding shells and fragments of sea life, he hypothesized that currents on the floor of the ocean were calm. There was likewise no proven technology for how to construct the cable itself. Copper wires would be used to transmit the telegraph signals as they were on land, but they needed a coating to protect them from seawater, which could sap electricity and drain the strength of a signal that would have to travel over 2,000 miles. Experts suggested Field try a milky tree sap from Malaysia known as Guta Perch. The material was something of a wonder product of the Victorian age. It was being used in everything from jewelry to golf balls because it could be easily shaped in hot water but remained flexible when cold. Even transport was going to be a problem. No ship at the time was big enough to carry the entire cable by itself. So Field had to arrange for two vessels, the USS Niagara and the HMS Agamemnon to each carry half the length of the cable. Workers would have to splice the two lines together mid-ocean. Perhaps most challenging of all was raising the vast sums of money needed for the project. One of the first investors to sign on was Peter Cooper. A neighbor of fields at Gramercy Park, Cooper had designed and constructed a pioneering railroad locomotive, the famous Tom Thumb. Field would find other New Yorkers to support the project, but ultimately was forced to turn to English investors to raise all the money he needed and he formed the Atlantic Telegraph Company, in which he was the largest shareholder. Field also turned to England for engineering expertise. He was fortunate in gaining the help of engineer Charles Bright and scientist William Thompson. He was not so lucky in hiring a man named Edward Whitehouse. Whitehouse had been trained as a surgeon, but had later in life become interested in telegraphs, 
a subject about which he could speak authoritatively, but in fact was an amateur. Field was captivated by White House's mistrust of scientific theory and reliance on his own experiments. White House also displayed a self-confidence that the hard-charging Field must have found attractive. Whatever the reason, the former surgeon was soon hired as the project's chief electrician. Field pressed ahead amid great fanfare. The New York Herald, wasting no hyperbole, called the project the greatest enterprise in the history of man. Newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic carried regular stories on Field's efforts to overcome the project's many scientific challenges and published maps showing the route the cable would take. With great hope, Field's two ships departed from the Irish coast in August 1857, expecting to signal news of their success back to Europe in a few weeks. But trouble struck almost immediately. Hardly had they left sight of shore when the cable broke. Fortunately, the repair was relatively simple and the two vessels set off again in short order. This time they got about 400 miles off the coast of Ireland before a storm hit. The pitching of the ship stressed the cable as it was unrolling, one large wave finally breaking the line. With heavy hearts, Field and his team agreed they would have to try again a year later and they would have to raise more money. In the second attempt, in June 1858, the two ships began their work in the middle of the Atlantic, and after splicing the two halves of the cable together, headed towards opposite shores. Field had also included improvements to the cable to make it stronger, and crucially to the device that played out line from each ship's stern. Engineers aboard the two vessels kept in constant contact and monitored the status of the line with a device called a mirror galvanometer which indicated the strength of the signals sent through the cable. After only a couple of days, the readings on the device became so weak that the captains decided to turn around and meet again in mid-Atlantic for another try. This time, after less than 200 miles, the cable snapped again, and the entire mission was abandoned until Field could coax more investors to pony up yet more money. Making one last try that summer, the Niagara and the Agamemnon set off yet again in July. Signals on the galvanometer faded in and out, and one ship nearly got lost because the cable interfered with its compass. But finally, in the wee hours of the morning on August 5th, Field and his team got near enough to shore for him to row to land, proclaiming, The cable is laid! It seemed they had accomplished an incredible feat. All across the United States, people celebrated with the same enthusiasm and sense of wonder that the moon landing would prompt a century later. Poems and songs were written to celebrate the event. There were theatrical productions, and Tiffany's purchased extra parts of the cable and fashioned them into commemorative jewelry. Queen Victoria sent a 98-word congratulatory message to President James Buchanan who replied with a gushing 149-word reply. It was hardly the lightning-fast communication Field had hoped for. Messages took hours to transmit. But within a month, 400 dispatches were sent. On the evening of September 1st, Field was in a triumphant mood. He had just starred in a parade at Broadway in New York. But at a banquet that night, he received word that a message from Europe had arrived garbled. In the days that followed, 
the signals seemed to weaken dramatically. In Europe, the team's scientists debated about what to do. White House assumed the problem could easily be solved by sending stronger and stronger electric currents. It was exactly the wrong thing to do. By overloading the system, White House effectively fried the cable's wires and ruined the entire line. In both the United States and Britain, rumors began to circulate that the whole undertaking had been a fraud, fueled by the fact that Field and his investors had been highly secretive about the technical aspects of it. One newspaper suggested that the cable had never even worked and the entire project had been an elaborate stock scheme. Was the Atlantic Cable a humbug, the Boston Courier wondered? Stunned that the project had collapsed so spectacularly, the British government convened a board of the world's leading telegraph experts to investigate. Bitterness and finger-pointing soon followed. Thompson, the cable's chief scientist, testified there were serious problems with White House's design. His decision to pump so much power through the cables had ruined them, he said. White House argued that he'd done nothing wrong, blaming instead Field's haste to get things done. While infighting threatened to consume Field's project, he learned he faced a new threat. A fellow American visionary named Perry Collins was working to realize his own dream of linking Europe and America. Collins had traveled to California in the 1840s in hopes of cashing in on the gold rush with various business ventures. One, a company to ship ice from the Arctic to Southern California. He'd also explored parts of Siberia. So in 1859, Collins approached the head of the Western Union Telegraph Company, Hiram Sibley, with an audacious proposal. Since Field's Atlantic Cable had failed, how about reaching Europe via Russia? He envisioned a route that would take the cable largely overland, thus avoiding the problems that constantly seemed to bedevil Field. Support for his scheme quickly grew to include Britain's Lord Palmerston, Tsar Alexander II of Russia, and even President Lincoln himself, who offered an American naval vessel to transport Collins and his supplies. Later joined by the Smithsonian Institution, the project was a massive undertaking. The line would run through thousands of miles of rugged territory, extending through the Pacific Northwest and present-day Alaska, ultimately connecting with existing cables in Russia and European capitals. The only challenging body of water that it would have to cross would be the 52-mile Bering Strait. In 1865, the Westward Cable Project got underway. One team sailed from San Francisco across the Pacific to build a landline through Siberia. A second team set out north overland toward British Columbia. Dubbed the Western Union Army, the group included technicians and scouts, interpreters and map makers and biologists each clad in blue, military-style uniforms and assigned informal ranks. After two long years of investigation, the British Committee studying the 1858 cable disaster finally released its findings in 1863. There was plenty of blame to go around, but the committee didn't find any criminal wrongdoing and even offered an upbeat prediction about the future of Field's project, saying that with design changes, the cable could indeed be successful. Armed with the finding, Field again returned to his investors cap in hand and sailing repeatedly to England. 
No one, in fact, had suffered more than the cables failing than Field himself. He had lost much of his fortune in the 1858 attempt. His wife and children, who had once known tremendous luxury, were under strict orders to live like paupers. This time, the cable was totally redesigned, with three times the copper cross-section and greater strength. Field and his team secured the largest ship afloat, the Great Eastern, which was big enough to carry the entire cable. And the Great Eastern could maintain a constant speed of around five knots, which made playing out the line steadier and safer. With such assurances, the investors agreed to sign on yet again. As one put it, since they had already spent so much money on this telegraph line, they'd better spend a little more. And Peter Cooper, one of the original investors, would later write that he had never regretted his involvement with the transatlantic cable, although it was a terrible time to go through. In July 1865, the Great Eastern set out from Europe carrying the entire cable, as well as workers, journalists, engineers, and dignitaries. Yet the ghosts of earlier missions seemed to haunt the voyage. Time and again, mirror galvanometer readings disappeared off the scale. Defects were repeatedly found in the cable's casing, forcing the ship's crew to recoil the line for repairs. For a time, the men were convinced there must be a saboteur on board and placed guards around the cable, but continued problems proved there was no foul play. Field was finally forced to concede defeat when the line, while being hauled on board for repairs, chafed against the hull of the ship and snapped. Repeated efforts to retrieve it from an ocean floor 2,000 fathoms down failed. Field would have to wait another year. On the other side of North America, Collins and his men were having troubles of their own. Little was known about the cable's path through British Columbia, and they needed to build roads to haul supplies. Racing to complete the project, Collins worked throughout the winter, a nearly impossible job in Alaska. Fires had to be lit to thaw out the frozen ground before holes could be dug to place telegraph poles. Food was in short supply, snow piled up 10 feet deep, and in the woods, wolves stalked the men. The team in Siberia, though, had continued to make good progress and offered hope they would be able to connect the line when it finally passed under the Bering Sea. It's remarkable that despite repeated failures, accusations of fraud, and dubious personnel decisions, Field continued to earn anyone's confidence. Yet once again, in 1865 and 1866, he was able to line up more money for the project and begin construction of another cable. This one, with improvements, aimed to overcome the difficulties that had doomed the earlier expeditions. In what must have been an all-too-familiar scene, Field in July 1866 set off again for Newfoundland. Day after day, the cable spooled out the back of the ship, and to everyone's astonishment, they encountered almost no problems. On Friday, July 27th, the Great Eastern sailed into Hearts Content Canada. Finally, Cyrus Field had succeeded. Western Union executives were devastated to hear of Field's achievement. For a time, they hoped the cable's connection would fade as it had before. But as the weeks passed and messages continued to flow across the Atlantic, they grudgingly had to accept that the undersea cable was here to stay. Technologically, it was a superior product, faster and more secure. 
There was nothing left to do but to call the Western Union Army's home, though it took a full year before headquarters could reach Collins and his team. Bitterly dejected, their job half done, the men abandoned hundreds of miles of cable, forests of empty telegraph poles, and mountains of equipment. Field overnight became a national hero. Between 1866 and 1870, he was the subject of an endless round of celebrations, banquets, awards, and newspaper interviews. At the International Exposition of 1867 in Paris, Field was awarded the grand prize. The U.S. Congress gave him a gold medal. On both sides of the Atlantic, journalists and academics saw the achievement as perhaps the greatest in the history of mankind. With improved communication, the reasoning went, there would be fewer international misunderstandings, fewer wars, and improved standards of living. One popular engraving depicted two angels, one representing the United States and the other the United Kingdom, walking arm in arm along the seabed. The cost of sending a message was high, some $10 a word, which is over $180 now, but the cable still found plenty of users. For commodity brokers, it was a boom. Within weeks of the first Atlantic signals, the price of cotton, which had once varied widely, became virtually equal in New York and London. Newspapers began to use the telegraph cable to send bulletins back and forth. In 1871, the New York Herald used the cable to report from Africa that its reporter, Henry Stanley, had found British missionary and explorer David Livingston, who had disappeared six years earlier. Stanley, of course, greeted Livingston with the famous words, Dr. Livingston, I presume? Collins' failed Pacific route left one important legacy. Over his years of work, he gathered volumes of information about the wealth of the Alaskan Territory's natural resources that helped convince Secretary of State William Seward to purchase Alaska from Russia in 1867. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. If you have any questions or feedback, please reach out to me on Twitter at Lost, the letter N, History Pod. And be sure to check out my website, www.scottmillerauthor.com. We'll see you next week.